I'm Matt Abrahams, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Hey, winners. Welcome back to Win the Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true changemakers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode comes from Maya Angelou and says, there is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. Matt Abrahams is a leading expert in the field of communication. As a lecturer in organizational behavior at Stanford University, he teaches popular classes in strategic communication and effective virtual presenting. In addition, Matt is a highly sought-after keynote speaker, communication consultant, and coach. He has helped numerous presenters prepare for high-stakes talks, including IPO Road, shows, Nobel Prize award presentations, and appearances at TED and the World Economic Forum. He is host of the award-winning podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, the podcast, and his online talks garner millions of views. Matt's first book, Speaking Up Without Freaking Out, helps people manage speaking anxiety and present more confidently and authentically. His new book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, has just been released. In this episode, we're going to talk about how to turn your fear and anxiety into a strength, the six-step framework to thrive in present presentations, and spontaneous conversation, how to build a network of influential people in your corner, and why the thing holding you back might just be your superpower. Before we begin, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. All right, let's win the day with Matt Abrahams. Matt, great to see you, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I am thrilled to be here, James. I look forward to our conversation. Well, congrats on the new book as well. Uh, So much to talk about. To kick things off, is there a story of struggle or success from when you were younger that would ultimately put you down the path you went on? I can pinpoint to the actual day and time (laughs) that this path started for me. I was a 14-year-old boy. I was encouraged by my English teacher, freshman English teacher, to attend a speech tournament on an early Saturday morning, we in his class on the very first day had to stand up and say what we did that summer. And at the end of the class, he comes to me and says, you're good at this talking thing. You need to go to this speech tournament. So I prepared all week. I prepared a speech on martial arts. I've, karate has always been very important to me. I get there. I am so nervous, James. The room is full of my friends, their parents who are judging this event, and the girl I like is in the room. <laughs> I got so distracted by my anxiety, I forgot to put on my special karate pants. You can see where this is going. The ones that have a little extra room. I started my 10 minute speech with a karate kick and ripped my pants from zipper to belt loop (laughs) in the first 10 seconds. I was mortified. Somehow I managed to finish that presentation. And from that moment, and since that moment, I have been focused on how anxiety can impact communication And prevent many of us from sharing the really important things that we want to get across. It's so interesting, that fear of public speaking, because we're okay talking to people one-on-one, but you add in one more person and eventually you reach a point where it's insurmountable. I mean, reaching, you know, hopping on a stage and speaking in front of a thousand people would terrify most people. Is it it the Jerry Seinfeld quote where he says, (laughs) at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than doing the eulogy? Absolutely. Anxiety is part of being human when it comes to speaking in front of others. And for some people, it can just be a small number. For others, it can be a big group. But it is something that we can learn to manage and in so doing, allow the world to hear our thoughts, our beliefs, and and really perhaps have a big impact. Yeah. Were there there any other lessons or memories you have from school? You and I were talking offline earlier on that your last name begins with an A, so you're always called up quickly at school. Yes. I was a W, so I was always sitting next to an empty desk and my mate Whitey (laughs) in the the back row. But are there any... So I I had a speech and drama teacher who said to me when I was in grade eight, she said, James, you mumble. No one can understand a word of what you're saying. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, that's an interesting thing that's imprinted on my brain still. Right. I very, it's, it's like a, a weird reaction to any time I sort of think about that memory. And it's interesting now as a professional speaker and podcaster how things can sort of come full yeah. circle. But did you have any things either positive or negative from when you were younger that sort, sort of reinforce some things for you? Well, as you mentioned, with the last name that starts with AB, I was always going first. So I became very comfortable having to speak in the moment. And I think that's helped me throughout my life and throughout my career. Also, it's helped me appreciate others who don't have that 
haven't had that opportunity to do that practice. I certainly have made many mistakes in communication in my life, and I've learned a lot about it. One of the things that I, I vividly remember is a quote that my mother says. I was giving a presentation in one of my classes, and my mother wanted to come see this particular class because she'd heard a lot about it. So I had her sitting in the back of this class I'm teaching, and at the end, she comes up to me and shares this bit of advice that just echoes loudly in my head. She said, Matt, you need to tell the time and not build the clock. And what she meant by that is I was going on and on and I was giving so much detail, thinking that I was enlightening and educating everybody. And her point was, I talk too much. Just get to the point, help people. So I, I use that. I hear that like you do, echoing in my head to remind me to be more concise and clear. Yeah, tell the time, not build the clock. I think that's a very valuable lesson, especially yeah. when people are nervous and they can just ramble for. Oh, for a absolutely! Long time. People are discovering what they want to say as they're saying it, and they take <laughs> us on that journey. When in fact, we can just get to the point and really help people with something that's memorable. Yeah. Ten minutes later, they're like, "What was the question again?" Yeah, that I'm exactly. Answering? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when did you learn that communication was going to be a superpower for you? I think when it, it really hit me was when I left graduate school, I, I had some student loans to pay. So I went to work in the corporate world and it became very clear that there was a difference of people's ability to communicate and how it was correlated with their success. There were some people who were amazingly bright where I worked and they weren't able to articulate themselves in a way that advance their points of view. And then there were some people who weren't as dedicated, committed uh, to their jobs, and yet they were expert communicators. And I saw how that really furthered their career. So it really struck me that communication is critical. And I remember all the things that I've learned, all the academic research that I had behind me and said, this is something that I want to commit to helping people get their point of view out. Mm, I think that's really interesting. There, there's a few things like uh, reading as a as a habit that can yeah. help you leapfrog a whole bunch of people in your career. Your ability to communicate, asking the right questions. Yeah. Probably the question I was most excited to ask you about mm -hmm. today whether, uh, uh, was this one. Are there any specific questions that you ask yourself in terms of goal setting or thinking bigger or achievement more broadly? Are there any specific questions that you ask yourself or a process you go through on a regular basis to maximize your potential? Uh, I'll, I'll answer this in two ways. So I think all communication, actually most actions that we have should be goal driven. And to me, a goal has three parts, information, emotion, and action. In other words, what do you want your audience to know? How do you want them to feel? And what do you want them to do? And whenever I enter into an interaction, I'm always asking myself, what's my goal here? What do I want the person or people I'm speaking with to know? How do I want them to feel? What do I want them to do? So that's my mantra that really helps me focus on what I'm saying. And then the other thing I remind myself, because I still get nervous, I still get anxious in certain circumstances, I'll remind myself that I have value to bring. Often when I am asked to speak or asked to teach, it's because people think there's some value that I have. And that makes me really focus on the needs of the audience rather than get caught in my head and that doom loop that can happen where you think about, I'm not worthy or I don't really have something of value here. So those are the two things that really help me focus and help me deliver value, I hope at least. Mm, that relationship with yourself, it's such a such an important one, making sure you yeah. recognize that you have value. Also focusing, I know someone... Uh, with the work that you have done, you know, your full career portfolio, you're always yeah. focused on what you can do to improve your own abilities. And that Absolutely. means you have more and more value as you reach these new heights and new domains. Yeah, I, I teach all the time that there are only three ways to get better at communication. And I'm, quite frankly, I think at anything, it's repetition, reflection and feedback. You need to get the reps in. You need to practice. But you have to reflect because if you don't reflect, you fall victim to that definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And then you have to get feedback. You have to look outside yourself to get input and information. So I personally try to practice that in everything I do. And I encourage everybody to take time to get the reps in, reflect, and then also get the feedback. Mm -hmm. Who's a mentor that stands out for you in the last sort of 20, 25 years? And what lesson did they teach you? So I have two mentors. I have many mentors, but I have I have two that really stand out to me. So one is my martial arts instructor. I've been studying martial arts for 40 years, and he is uh, an amazing person, very grounded, and very simple ideas. Be present, be in service of others, and learn from what you've done. You have to make mistakes to learn. Very important lessons and lessons that I, I keep reminding myself of. And in the martial arts, these lessons can come hard, sometimes literally hard. Uh, additionally, another, another mentor of mine is uh, my first real formal boss that I had. She was amazing. She was so concerned about people, not just the work they did, but the people themselves. We were in a startup moving a mile a minute. 
And she saw that I was, I was burning out. I was, I was, I wasn't sleeping. I was working really hard. We were trying to grow really big. She came to me and she said, you're taking the next three weeks off. I said, I can't, I can't miss it. She goes, we will cover for you. You need to take care of yourself. We need you at your optimum. And so I just remember very vividly her really focusing on people and on their needs. And the other thing she taught me that I always remind myself, I'm very goal driven. And I always see that goal out there in the future. And I remember her saying very clearly, we not only have to respect the goals we have, but we have to sometimes turn around and look how far we've come and appreciate that change. And I always try to remind myself as I'm pushing myself to some future goal to remember the successes that I've had and how those are actually enabling and equipping what I have coming in the future. And I try to pass that along to my students, to my kids, to my friends, because I think that's a valuable lesson. You can be very driven, but if you don't appreciate what you've accomplished to help you get to that next step, it, it means one, you're not enjoying as much. And two, you don't also remember all of that hard effort that can then fuel what comes in the future. I think that's so powerful. What are you looking for in a student in one of your classrooms who's someone that you really want to connect with further or someone that you really want to mentor their growth a lot more personally? Well, I look to mentor and help everybody grow. And and I have to share with you that I'm always humbled by my students. It, it, it does not pass. I don't go a day without reminding myself that I would not qualify to be a student in my classes. My students are so impressive. What I look for really is somebody who's open, somebody who's open to feedback, somebody who's open to trying new things. And anybody who has that attitude is somebody I want to connect with. And, and most of my students come that way. That's why they choose to take the class that I teach. But I'm all about really somebody who is there in the moment, willing to try new things and grow. And when you look at corporations and, mm -hmm. and big companies, what are the biggest mistakes that they're making in terms of communication? They don't prioritize it, number one. They, they, they see communication as a necessary evil. They feel it's something that takes too much time. It's all about drive, drive, drive. Invariably, communication comes back up. And, and I am often brought into triage situations where they didn't invest in it. To me, if you're running a business, you really have to think about the people, process, and infrastructure you have around communication. So when you're interviewing people, you need to help them understand that communication is important and you need to assess their communication in the interview. So it's not just their answers. How are they answering? What kind of respect? What kind of depth are they going into? You have to build in processes around communication. What tools do we use? When do we use them? And then you have to build an infrastructure and an infrastructure can be physical, like what tools are you using? But also, when do we meet? Who do we meet with? How do we meet? All of this needs to be defined. And if you build that in early and build that into your culture, then communication can become an enabler and not something that becomes a challenge. You mentioned job interviews there. For yeah. someone who's approaching a job interview, are there any specific questions that they should make sure they include in the job interview or things that they should keep an eye on before they enter that room? So I have a whole process for job interviewing. So let me, <laughs> let me go through it very quickly. First, it starts with re research. You have to really understand the company and the potential people that you're interviewing with. So you have to do cyber stalking. You're checking LinkedIn, company profiles, talk to people who might have worked there or interviewed there. You then need to be thinking about specific themes that you want to convey about yourself. With those themes, you need to stockpile some evidence, support, stories you can tell, maybe data you can give, maybe a testimonial, a previous boss gave you an award. Stockpile those. So when you go into that interview and that question comes in, you think to yourself, this is a question that associates with this theme and I can pull out this particular example. So it becomes an act of assembly rather than an act of creation. And most of us can be better and feel more confident when we're assembling information. So it's critical. As an interviewer, the thing I'm always looking for is the way in which somebody answers their question. So it's not just their answer, but how do they answer it? Do they answer right away? Do they reflect? Do they pull in and connect different ideas? Do they demonstrate that they understand why I asked that question? Those are the things I'm always looking for in the people I interview. As an interviewer, is yeah. there one question specifically that you ask that you know is going to perhaps get some vulnerable answers or to knock them off course with um, some of the pre-prepared answers that they might have? So I never try to knock people off course. Well, in terms of being yeah. able to see their natural body language right. and the way they might handle, not, not a crisis, but <laughs> an uncomfortable situation. So you know what I'll do is I, I have some standard questions that I ask, but I think where I really get at what you're asking is the follow-up question. So well, I'll say things like, 
tell me more, what helped you come to that conclusion? And that's like peeling back a couple layers. And that's where the vulnerability comes out. That's where the interest comes out. You know, and I learned that in the martial arts, really, you know, the initial move is not what's really important. It's the moves that follow after that. So I will often in on my podcast, I will often ask a question. And then the follow-up question is where the real juice comes. And the other thing I'll do is I'll pause and I'll just give space. And in that space, people feel permission to share more and maybe a little bit of awkwardness. And that's also where I get some really insightful information. It reminds me of something my father always says when he says the most important shots in golf are your second shot and your first putt. That's right. Well, <laughs> rather than what know, you do off the tee. Yeah, I wouldn't know because I'm always in the rough when I play golf. But yes. Aren't we all? Aren't we yeah. all? Uh, is there a particularly dark day that stands out in your career? And if so, what did you learn from it? I write about it in my new book. There was uh, a time where I had to lay off uh, about a third of my team. So uh, I was in high tech for about a decade, went through the the amazing bubble of the early 2000s. And, and when we hit the wall, we hit the wall hard. And I was told that this particular part of my team was safe. There was no problem. I actually confirmed that that was true and told the team. I said, we've got layoffs coming. All of us are safe here for now. And then literally the next day I got the call and said, we got to take them out. And, and that was so painful for me. I really, really connect with my employees. I, I was so upset. I actually left the company as a result of this, but I told them I would be the one who would let go of this team because I was so concerned and connected to them. It was a very challenging day. I think I learned a few things. One, I learned that you can't trust everything you hear. And, and that was a really hard lesson because we all work so closely together. The second thing I learned is that there's an opportunity in this moment. And I write about it in the book for these people who are my close friends. We, we'd struggled together. We'd grown together as I was giving them the unfortunate news. I used it as an opportunity to also encourage them to expand and to grow. And I'm really happy to say that several of them went on to amazing careers that were unrelated to what we were doing. They actually seized on that moment, the opportunity it afforded them, and they're doing amazing things in the world. And that just reminded me of, uh, there's a Zen koan, and it, it's all about maybe. So when something really good happens, rather than just embrace it, be calm and say maybe. And then when something bad happens, same thing. Instead of feeling sorrow and regret, just say maybe because something good can come from it. And I certainly saw in that situation with my colleagues the benefit that it had in their lives. So that was a very challenging time. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite books of all time is Mindset by Dr. Carol Dweck, The Difference yeah. Between the Fixed Mindset and the Growth Mindset, mm -hmm. which I know you reference extensively in your yeah. new book, asking people or letting people know as much as they can in that emotional state that this is actually an opportunity that could call you to a higher game. There's a lot of ways that you could grow and a lot of, yeah. you know, it opens up space what might be their next best career opportunity from there. Absolutely. Uh, Carol Dweck's work is, is very meaningful, and, and I do reference it in the book. The thing that I really fixate on is this notion of not yet. Many of us, when it comes to spontaneous speaking, that's speaking in the moment or communication in general, we just feel it's not us. That's not our thing. We don't have that gift of gab. And I really like the growth mindset approach of not yet. It's not that you can't, it's just not right now. And you can do things to actually grow and enhance your skills. So I love this notion of not yet. I find it very motivational and I find it empowering. The Maya Angelou quote I shared at yeah. the start, of the, I, know, I saw you nodding in the background because you know exactly where it's from. It's from the start of your book. Yes. There is no greater agony than bearing an untold story inside you. What does that quote mean to you? One of the fundamental motivations for what I do is I believe everybody has important information to contribute to our daily interactions, our conversations in the world. And it pains me to think that there are people who have valuable things to share and to say, but don't because they don't feel they have the tools or that their anxiety gets in the way. So what really motivates me is to help people feel more comfortable and confident in their communication so we can hear their voices and understand a diverse set of points of view. Traveling around the world, helping clients and yeah. speaking on stages, I, I see people who feel like they don't have a good story. Yeah. And I felt like that for probably the first 35 years of my life. And right. I think it's a big lesson and an important part of your work is letting everyone know that you do actually have an amazing story. There's a structure that we can all use to be able to tease out the best story and communicate that most effectively. That's right. A lot of us, for whatever reason, self-esteem, past experience, we feel that we don't bring 
value to our interactions and our conversations. And even having it too good, there's like lifestyle entrepreneurs who were all homeless or who had a car accident. Right. People are feeling like, look, if I haven't had one of these massive extremes, right. then it's not worth me communicating my story, which is just wrong. That's that's absolutely right. I mean, many of us have influencers or or mentors in our lives who have helped us in many ways that didn't have some major epiphany or major experience. And, and we have to remind ourselves that we can be that way for others. Mm-hmm. Uh, your new book, amazing. Think faster, talk smarter. What's the problem you wanted to solve with the, your new book? And who do you want someone to be once they've finished reading it? I love that last question. Thank you for that. The follow-up question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you embedded it. I like it. So, if you think about it, most of our communication is not planned. It's not the presentation, the pitch, the the meeting with agendas. Most of our communication happens in the moment. It's the questions we're asked, the feedback we're asked to give, the toast or tribute at an event. It could be the small talk we're having. Most of our communication happens in the moment. I call that spontaneous speaking. And yet we never learn how to do that. And so it's the most frequent communication we do and we aren't equipped well to do it. So that's the problem I'm trying to solve. And what does that look like? It looks like somebody who is comf- confident and comfortable in the moment when they are called up to do whatever it is they're called up to do. Maybe they make a mistake and they have to fix it. Maybe their boss turns to them and says, would you mind introducing this person? It's that confidence and that quiet way of just getting it done. Mm. That's the goal of it. I think that confidence is also, it's not about you becoming a completely different type of personality. Mm-hmm. One of the best wedding speech, Australians at our weddings, we always have an amazing best man speech. Everyone yeah. is looking forward to the best man speech. Yeah. I went to a wedding and the best man was a very big introvert and he presented this thing. It was almost quite monotone, but it was exactly who his personality was right. and he absolutely nailed it. So it's such a great lesson that you don't need to be someone else. So let's just learn a few of these fundamentals and, and get that confidence so you can do the best you can in that moment. The biggest counter, counterintuitive idea in the book and in what I coach and teach is this notion that all of us can, through preparation, get better at this. And people are like, preparing to be spontaneous, that sounds counterintuitive. But if you've ever played a sport or you played jazz music, you know that you have to prepare. You know, jazz musicians don't just play any note. They play certain chord progressions that they've learned before. Athletes in the moment of doing their sport are basing what they're doing on the preparation practice and drills they've done before. And in doing that preparation, it allows you to be your authentic self, to be in the moment, to be of service. You're not in your head. You're not judging. You're not evaluating. So absolutely, I, I, I enjoy any opportunity where somebody has an authentic communicative experience, be it a best person toast or, or if it's uh, at uh, an awards acceptance or even in small talk. Mm. Something Dr. Jeff Spencer shared yeah. on the podcast before when he was a guest, this idea that preparation precedes performance. First you prepare, then you perform. It's one of the most basic performance fundamentals, but yeah. I think it's such an incredible way of thinking about it. And then another quote that I heard from Emily Fletcher when she was on the podcast is that the more you prepare, the more you allow yourself the luxury of surrender. Yeah. And that I feel like it's the mastery level of speaking when you can have that sensory acuity mm-hmm. of what's going on in the room, which I know you do so well. Yeah. So you can introduce different concepts. You can adjust on the fly to make sure people are getting maximum value and connection out of it. But you can only do that through getting the reps in, like you mentioned earlier, and doing all of that preparation behind the scenes. Absolutely. So the book is called Think Faster, Talk Smarter. The think faster part, people are like, I already think fast. But what I'm really talking about is pattern recognition. And that's what you're talking about there. So in the moment, I'm seeing patterns that I've drilled and practiced before so I can respond authentically in the moment. I do want to just bring up a distinction I make. I I believe performance is really important when you're talking about sports or when you're talking about acting or or singing performance though i think gets in the way when you're we're actually talking about communication to me performance implies there's a right way to do it in communication there is no right way there are better ways and worse ways so i want people to focus on connection rather than perfection so it's really about that connection you have with the audience it's not about doing it right when we try to do it right we actually get in our own way because we're distracting ourselves part of our cognitive bandwidth is focused on judging and evaluating what we're doing in the moment so much so that it precludes us from doing it well so i just i make a fine distinction between performance and connection 
distinction. I think that's it's a really important distinction, and you lay that out so well in the book. In fact, you actually mentioned to lean in more towards being dull. Yeah, at times, and and how effective that can be because as someone who is a I would say I'm a fairly high-functioning perfectionist. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's been a good skill of mine, but yeah. it's immensely frustrating if I'm doing things where I have a presentation to do or, or just any, anything where you, you put a very high expectation on yourself, but by some of that negative talk that can creep in and you mm-hmm. put so much pressure on there that it just it, you use far too much energy. And you look at the people who are the best at any field like yeah. skiing, yeah. they are so efficient they use the least amount of effort to be able to get there. I, I really love that concept of just being a bit more dull to enable you to connect better to get the result. It's a really important distinction. Yeah. So in writing the book and really trying to figure out the right approach to this, I spent a lot of time exploring research in psychology, anthropology, neuroscience, but also improvisation. And improv has a lot of amazing rules. And one of them is dare to be dull. Just do what is needed. And I've translated that to the very first day of my Stanford MBA class. I get up in front of my students and I say, maximize mediocrity. And James, you've never seen jaws drop <laughs> more like this. My, my amazingly talented, really bright Stanford MBA students are like, no one has ever told us to be mediocre. Yeah, not at this university. No, or anywhere. <laughs> and, and, and when I go through the logic that we're talking about, where the pressure you put on yourself, the judging, the valuating that you do that gets in the way actually prevents you from achieving the success you're striving for. So if you actually just focus on getting it done, just answer the question, just give the feedback, just engage in the small talk, that actually frees up cognitive bandwidth to actually do it really well. So on the, the last thing I say on that first day is maximize mediocrity so you can achieve greatness. And the students understand that. And then the rest of our course is all about putting that into practice. Mm, for sure. Uh, in your new book, you mentioned the six-step think faster, talk smarter mm-hmm. method. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what that is and perhaps if there's one or two that really stand out to you? Absolutely. We've already talked about mm-hmm. some of them. So the six-step methodology is divided really into two categories, mindset and messaging. When it comes to mindset, it's all about managing that anxiety that we've talked about. It's about making the switch to just getting it done rather than worrying about how you do it. So it's that connection over perfection. Another step, step three in it is really reframing the circumstance. So many of us see spontaneous speaking as threatening and challenging where we have to defend our position, defend our answers, rather than seeing it as an opportunity, an opportunity to connect, an opportunity to engage, an opportunity to learn. So when we're in that harsh Q&A moment where the person asks us a really challenging question, we can actually say, thank you. This is an opportunity for me to extend and expand what we've talked about instead of I have to defend and entrench. And then the fourth step of the mindset part is really about listening. We don't listen well. We listen just enough to get the gist of what the person is saying. And then we start judging, evaluating, and planning. We need to really listen to get at the crux of what's being said. We have to think, what's the bottom line? Because if we don't, we can make a mistake. Let me give you an example. Imagine you and I come out of a meeting and you turn to me and say, hey, Matt, how'd that go? And I hear feedback. And all of a sudden I say, James, well, you did this wrong. You could have done this better. We should have done that. But had I really listened, I might have noticed you came out the back door, not the front door. You were speaking a little more quietly. You were looking down. What you really wanted in that moment was not feedback, but was support. And by me itemizing all the things that went wrong, I actually did you a disservice. It might have damaged our relationship because I wasn't listening fully. So we have to listen fully, and the book gives some prescribed steps about how to do that. The second part of the methodology, the last two steps, are about messaging. And messaging is all about being structured. We do not do well rambling. Our brains are not wired to listen to and encode when somebody rambles. So we need to use structure, frameworks to help. And then the final step is what I call the F word of communication, not the naughty one, focus. Many of us just ramble and ramble and ramble and don't get to the point. And if we're focused, people will remember what we say. And in this high-paced virtual world, concision is key. So those are the six steps. And if you go through those steps, taking your own time, finding your own way, you will actually improve your confidence and ability to speak better in the moment. If you were sitting down with someone who wanted to really tell an amazing story, maybe for a website, maybe for a presentation, Mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to tell it in an authentic, engaging, persuasive, vulnerable way. What is the process that you would take them through to understand and map out that story? First thing I would I would have them do, as I mentioned earlier, is define your goal. What is it you want? So what do you want them to know, feel, and do? Because that really helps you focus. Second, I would say find a structure, a way to package up that story. I'll give you two examples of structure. 
If you've ever watched an advertisement on TV, if you've ever pitched an idea, you've probably used problem, solution, benefit. There's this problem, here's how we solved it, and here is the benefit of doing so. Problem, solution, benefit. That's a great way to tell a story. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Our brains are wired to process stories like that, that are packaged that way. It builds in transitions. If you are saying next, so, second, you're not connecting. Your job in telling a story is like being a tour guide. The number one rule of being a tour guide is never lose your tour group. You're a bad tour guide if you get people lost. Same thing is true with a storyteller. So a good tour guide sets your expectations, puts you on a clear path, connects all the points along the way. So a structure like problem, solution, benefit is a great way to do it. There's another structure that I love. It's three questions. What? So what? Now what? The what is your idea, your product, your service, your belief. The so what is why is it important to the person I'm talking to? And the now what is what comes next? So using one of these two structures or many other structures, this whole second part of the book is different structures for different types of spontaneous speaking. So if I was teaching somebody to be authentic, persuasive, and engaging, start with a goal, have a structure, and then think about how can I make this story maximally relevant to the audience I'm talking to. And you can do that through the language you use. For example, use time-traveling language. Ask people, imagine this, picture what this could be like. Think back to when these terms actually engage the audience rather than me telling you I have you seeing it in your mind. I also use analogies and questions to build in your curiosity to connect to what you already know. So you start with your goal, you find a structure, you make sure it's relevant, and then you add these engagement techniques. That's how you tell a good, authentic, clear story. And one thing I love about your book is the way that you apply this, not just to professional settings, but, you know, at dinner parties and yeah. there's other opportunities where, you, where you're hanging out with people. Absolutely. <laughs> I, when I wrote this book, I, I, I have six specific speaking situations that many people struggle with. The one I did not expect to have the most interest was small talk. I thought everybody would be talking about <laughs> feedback and questions, but you're right. Chit chat is really difficult for people and there are things you can do to make it easier. Mm. Uh, you kick off the book by talking about anxiety. What has your research and experience led you to believe the solution for overcoming anxiety is? Well, the first thing is I don't think you can ever truly overcome it. We can, as, as someone who's a long anxiety sufferer, I, I agree 100%. I think it, you can always feel it just a tiny bit deep down. Right. It's at all best. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about managing it. It's not about overcoming it. And I, I don't even know that we would want to. Anxiety managed well can actually be good for you. It can help you focus, gives you energy, tells you what you're doing is important. So it's not about overcoming it. It's about managing it so it doesn't manage us. So anxiety is ingrained, I believe, in being human. Most people, up to 85% of people report feeling nervous in high stakes situations. And I quite frankly think the other 15% are lying. I think we could create something. <laughs> and 15% of the population are lies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there are things we can do and it, it's a two-pronged approach. You have to manage symptoms. That's what we physiologically and mentally experience. And then the sources, the things that initiate and exacerbate it. The first book I wrote was called Speaking Up Without Freaking Out. And it's 50 techniques based on academic research to manage anxiety. And I don't expect all 50 to work for people. I expect three to five to work for folks. And I encourage everybody in my new book and my previous book to create what I call an anxiety management plan, which is a com combination of the symptomatic strategies we can use, as well as the things we can do to address the sources. Let me give you one example of both. Deep breathing is quite possibly the single best thing you can do to manage some of your symptoms. Deep belly breathing, like if you've done yoga or Tai Chi, uh, a lot of those in the military learn box breathing and other types of breathing. It slows down your autonomic nervous system. And the most important part is the exhale, not the inhale. You want your exhale to be twice as long as your inhale. And only a few times of doing that, that will help. That's probably the most universal technique for managing anxiety. And let me share with you a source. Many of us are made nervous because we're worried that we will not achieve whatever our speaking goal is. So my students are worried they're not going to get a good grade. Entrepreneurs are worried they're not going to get support and funding. People listening in might be afraid that their project isn't supported. What's making us nervous is a potential negative future outcome. So the way to short circuit that is to become present oriented. And you can become present oriented doing lots of things. Before you and I started this formal conversation, we had an informal talk and that helped bring me to the present moment. It's hard to have a conversation with somebody and not be in the present moment. You can do some light exercise or walk around the building, get yourself in your body. That gets you present oriented. Do like athletes do. Listen to a song or a playlist to get yourself present oriented. What I do every time before I speak, I speak out loud tongue twisters. You can't say a tongue twister right and not be in the present moment. 
And it also warms up our voice. I am amazed that people who are athletes and exercise musicians who play music, they warm up before they do those things. But when they speak, they don't warm up. We have this imagined <laughs> idea that we can go from silence to brilliance without warming up. So you can manage symptoms and sources. It takes some time. You create a plan that works for you. And that's how you begin to manage anxiety. It's such a great way of remembering that having like the, the AMP or yeah, the AMP, the AMP whatever you, you the anxiety management plan, AMP. Yeah. Yeah. An example of that is like um, the other day I was running a day for about 50 people. Yeah. It was all on me. It was a very obviously important thing to do, but I'd been traveling so much, sleeping yeah. in hotel rooms where you have a crappy sleep. I was feeling very flat. And as a result of all of these things, these, these massive anxiety feelings creeped up in a way that I hadn't experienced in wow. many years. Sorry about that. Yeah, but focusing on the, the breathing, it, it's much better to have those. I didn't, yeah. I didn't call it my plan, but I'm like, cool, in this situation, right. what do I do? It's cool. The very first thing I do is focusing on the breathing, the double the exhale like you yeah. talk about just then and in your book, um, thinking about um, connecting back with presence. Like what is the worst case scenario is that I need to politely excuse myself and just come back in a little bit and yeah. wait until those things can can start to to um, to go a little bit. And then when you can come back right. and enjoy your presence and performance a lot better once you start to feel yourself. Absolutely. Uh, so my anxiety management plan is three things and I've honed this over many years and I encourage everybody to your anxiety management plan is a hypothesis. So you have to test it. And if it works great, if it doesn't, you, you make adjustments. So I've already shared some of mine. I take a deep belly breath. That's, that's what helps. It gets me really pro focused in the present. I remind myself I'm in service of my audience. That helps. And I say a tongue twister and that just by doing those three things before I, I have a communication, it really helps. Let me share one thing. If you're in that moment and you're feeling that panic, distract your audience. A great way to do it is just ask a question, get them thinking. I sometimes get nervous or, or get worried. Did I say this? What should I say next? And I'll just stop with my students and I'll just say, I'd like to pause for a second. I'd like for you to think about how what we've just covered and how you can apply it. My students don't think, oh, Matt's having a panic moment here. <laughs> my students say, how can I apply it? All of us can come up with a question that we can deploy in the moment that gets the audience to focus elsewhere, distract them from focusing on us just for a moment to help ourselves collect our thoughts. We often feel like once the train is moving, I can't get off of it. You can just ask a question. It's seamless and it works really well. Have you got a process before you go on stage for an important presentation outside of the things that we have that we have spoken about? There's a good friend of mine, Janine Shepard. She observes three parts of the audience and, and bows and polite recognition of service to those people. I always, you know, I do star jumps and all these types yeah. of things and breathing. And I also think about just what's my first line, just nail that first line. Have you got anything along those lines that we haven't spoken about yet? So I certainly do my anxiety management plan. I try my best to connect with somebody in the audience if I can. So I talk to them. It reminds me of why they're here and it helps me get very present focused because I'm actually talking to them and understanding their needs. The other thing I'll do is I'll really observe the space. I like to see the space before I communicate, even if it's from behind the curtain. I just like to see the room and, and get that experience so that when I get out there, it doesn't feel awkward or, or bad. It feels like a place of comfort. And interestingly, you can do that without actually physically being in the space. You can look at pictures and visualize it. There are even some VR tools, virtual reality tools that you can use to help you see the spaces you're speaking in. So for me, it's really getting grounded in the space and connecting to the people. And I, I try to do that every time before I speak. Yeah, you just mentioned there uh, turning up, uh, arriving at an event earlier just to yeah. watch other speakers, just to yeah. connect with people in the room. You're right. That is absolutely like just adding more clarity away from the confusion of like what's going to happen or all of that uncertainty. You're just adding a little bit more certainty in that situation. And it makes it more authentic and yeah. present and special for your audience because if I see the speakers before me and I can connect something I said to the other people who went before, that's a special moment for the audience because they know that's just, that's not a canned speech he's giving. That's something that connects. And that I think can be really helpful. And it helps the audience see and remember, not just what you're saying, but what other people have said. So anything you can do to package information up to help your audience is better for them. You know, you as a podcast host, and you do a really good job of this, and I try to do the same thing. Part of our job as the people asking the questions is to help the audience understand. So that's where paraphrasing, connecting ideas, asking follow-up questions really helps. And that's what makes a difference between, I think, a good moderator, a good host, a good facilitator, and somebody who's just moving to the next question. Uh, how can someone think optimistically about their future when they're still haunted by failures of their past? Yeah, so we have to learn from our past. Rumination is is really a, a handicap in these circumstances. 
there's a an American basketball coach, Mike Shashevsky, uh, Coach K. He has this wonderful mantra that he would always tell his te- his his students, and in fact, it's become ubiquitous in sports. Next play, if you're an athlete and you do something wrong, you can sit and ruminate and beat yourself up over it, or you can simply say next play. If you're a basketball player and you miss a shot and you you take any time off, the other team is down the court and probably scoring. You have to be in that next play. Same thing is true if you have an amazing success. If you're sitting there gloating and feeling so good about yourself, next play. So I'm not saying we shouldn't reflect. Reflection is critical to improvement, but ruminating gets in the way. So when you find yourself recounting all of those things beyond the point of reflection, just remind yourself, next play. I've got it. I can do it next time. So that next play mentality can really help take us out of that rumination. That's a massive, I, I think, yeah, people go and rewind that. That is a, an unbelievable <laughs> lesson to think about. That's really, really valuable. I try to live my life by next play. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's so smart. It reminds me a little bit of um, Tom Brady. They asked him what your favorite Super Bowl ring is, and he says the next one. Yeah, exactly. It's like if you're sort of haunted by these things of the past, it's like let's connect with this frequency of the future and, and what you can do to, to make these circumstances happen. Yep, absolutely love that. Um is there anything else that we haven't spoken about so far today? Because I feel like we've covered so much already. Is there anything else you focus on to turn random encounters with people into increasing the probability that you're going to have a meaningful friendship with those people? So on my podcast, I interviewed somebody named Rachel Greenwald. She's an amazing person. She's really fascinating. She's a professional matchmaker and an academic. Really interesting combination. <laughs> and she told me something that really helped me change the way I envision small talk and connection with people. She said, the goal is to be interested, not interesting. And that to me really was a huge unlock because I would go into these circumstances really focused on how other people perceive me. And it's not about that. It's about being curious. It's about being engaging. And and that's what you need to do is really be there for the person. So I now go into these circumstances asking questions, highlighting things in the environment, trying to bring people together. And that's where the excitement and connection really happens. Many of us go into small talk and these interactions like the game of tennis. We want to spike the ball across the net and score. That's how we do it. We want to have that zinger, that really important comment. I actually think it's better to think of it as that game of hacky sack, you know, that little beanbag ball where the whole goal is just to keep it off the ground. And when I pass it to you, the best way to do that is to pass it in a way that you can then take it and get it back to me in an easy way. So when we see our interactions that way, it really helps us connect. Mm. If, if you were sitting in the audience and there was an amazing speaker who just finished their presentation and you wanted to connect with this per- person even though there's a lot of other people in the room, and I know there's always a bit of a rush for speakers once they come off stage, what would you be thinking about or what would you do to give yourself the best chance of establishing a real connection with that speaker when they came off stage? I would share how something they said connected to me and the value I saw in it. You know, as a speaker yourself, me as a speaker, it is so glorious to see how your points land and to see how people are taking what you say. And they're in it for me as a speaker is where I get to learn. So I am always drawn to people who help me see what we've talked about and how they further it. So that's what I would do when I would approach somebody. I would really share the impact it had on me and and my thoughts on it. There's something that we've we've spoken a little bit about today in terms of like serving other people, but yeah. something that's been uh, probably the, the most essential thing for my career is this idea of becoming as valuable as I can be so I have more value to offer other people. What is the role of thinking about solutions that you can provide for people or ways that you can enhance someone's life or improve their life in all of the work that you do? I think it's critical. I think we always have to be th- thinking about the value that we bring. And, and that means that we have to be empathetic. We have to put ourselves in the other person's perspective. The biggest mistake people make in communication, bar none, is they start from the wrong place. They start from saying, here's what I want to say. Rather, you have to be in service of your audience, I think, is what do they need to hear? So you really have to focus on the needs of the audience. And that's what can make a really big difference in the communication that you have. Uh, you mentioned your kids earlier. How do you adjust your communication style to uh, liaise with some kids who can obviously have some challenging moments depending on, on ages? Well, I wish I knew the answer to that. So, uh, <laughs> we all? Yeah. So I have, I have two teenage kids and it, it, it's really challenging. You know, my wife is, is much better at this than I am. Uh, and, and she has a mantra and I talk about it in the book. It's minimal words, 
minimal words. You know, the women in my life are always telling me to speak less. I think my mom, had, you know, <laughs> tell the time, don't build the clock. My, my, my wife is minimal words because in that you can, you get your point across and then silence, you know, minimal words and then follow it with silence. You can then actually get some information. I, on my podcast, interviewed somebody who wrote a book about interrogation, the communication of interrogation. And I, I asked this very question. I said, I have two teenagers. They're both preparing to be CIA operatives. I'm sure because they do not talk. <laughs> what do I do? And he said, simple questions followed by silence. And so that's what I try to do with my kids. And, and I see some success with it. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We, we have, uh, you know, uh, having toddlers, we have a, a three and a or four year old, sorry, and a one and a half year old. Yes. And it's challenging, isn't it? Sometimes you think you can be quite a skilled communicator or yeah. negotiator. And then when you get what's coming back on the other end, it's like, wow, I feel like I'm a complete entry level person <laughs> all over again. That takes you right back to the fundamentals of communication and connecting. Right. And, and when you actually show with your body language that you're really present. Right. How different that is versus the way that we go through most of our day when we're so busy making food and cleaning up and doing all these right. other things with the, the chaos of the regular day. Absolutely. Uh, I love that you're actually thinking about how what's happening with your interaction with your kids is actually translating to how you could be a better communicator. A lot of us, we view communication success as having got through it, right? So I was successful because I got through it instead <laughs> of what did I learn? What was transacted here? What was the communication that really happened? So I like that you're looking at that. We can learn a lot from our interactions with our family and our friends, and we can solicit feedback from them and, and really see what works. I, I heard so many people talk about the ways that you need to raise your kids. And to me, it's the complete opposite. I want the kids to teach me oh, about yeah. the world. Oh, so it's a bit like that thing of talking about of, of being of service and yeah. just listening and asking the right questions. I love I that. I have learned so much from my kids uh, about myself, about life, about mm. about the world. Uh, but you have to put yourself in a position to do that, to learn. Many of us feel like, especially in situations where we don't feel we have a lot of control, we want to assert our point of view. And this is much more passive and receptive. And it's a great way to learn. A question I'm asking more and more guests on this show, because yeah. I think it's an important one to remember in this crazy, conflicting right. world that we're in today. Uh, what do you love most about yourself? I love my curiosity. I, I, I am a hugely curious person. That's why I love the podcast I do. That's why I love the research I did for the book. That's why I love teaching. So I really love that curiosity. It's what motivates me. I think if I ever felt satiated with my curiosity, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. Such a great quality. Yeah. And you do it so well. A final question before the rocket round. On your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard that you could show yourself on your worst day? I think I've already shared it. I, be in service of others. What, what value do I bring? That really, really helps me focus and remind me what I'm doing is important. All right, let's now move into the win the day rock around 10 questions and some right. quick answers. You up for this one, Matt? Uh, let's see if I can think fast and talk smart. <laughs> That's let's, right, we're putting let's, you on let's the it. Number one, what quote inspires you the most? So what inspires me the most is a quote that I first heard in Buckaroo Banzai, the movie. No matter where you go, there you are. And I love that notion of be present in the moment. That inspires me. I am a very fast thinker and I'm always ahead. I need to be in the moment. Yeah, it reminds me of the Jim Rohn quote, wherever you are, be there. It's such, yeah. a, it's such a simple yeah. thing to remember, especially these days with phones and, and everything oh, else. Oh, absolutely. Uh, number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Uh, neither. I'm a tea drinker and it's afternoon. I need my little tea moment of Zen to pick me up. What type of tea? Is it like a green tea or a black tea? What do you have? So I was visiting Hong Kong to do a presentation as a thank you gift. They gave me this very special blend of green tea that is fantastic. It costs a tremendous amount of money for me to import it, but it is, it is the, the, the aroma, the taste, it is truly uh, a, a great experience. So one gift turned into like a six figure a year uh, commitment. <laughs> it's <now>. not six <laughs> figures, but it, it fundamentally changed uh, the way I think of tea. Yes. <laughs> For sure. And hey, we give a big Australian audience. We love tea back home as yes. well. Uh, number three, what's one bit of advice you would give your 18 year old self? Keep opportunity open. Always seek out opportunity. I have benefited greatly by keeping opportunity in front of me, saying yes to things for sure. Mm, yeah. So good. Number four, what book do you gift the most or is there a book that contributed most to the mindset you have today? 
There are two books and they're very different. One is Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. It's all about how to make your ideas uh, remain and resonate with people. And the other is called Improv Wisdom by Patricia Ryan Madsen. I give that book to everybody. Fundamentally changed my life. How do we apply principles from improvisation into our daily being? Great book. Mm. Uh, Number five, is there a vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Uh, I have pretty high level imposter syndrome. Uh, and, uh, you know, I teach at a university with amazing people. I've surrounded myself with these just really impressive friends and I now talk a lot about it and I, I express my concerns and it's opened up a whole world to me. And I've come to realize most people feel this way in certain circumstances. So that's something that I used to really keep hidden and, and I talk about quite freely now. When do you feel that imposter syndrome first came, came into your, into your being? Uh, when I got in, so as an undergraduate, I went to Stanford mm-hmm. and uh, I showed up and my colleagues were amazing. Absolutely. I mean, just amazing. And I felt like I do not belong here. <laughs> I, this is the wrong pool to be swimming in. I need to be in the, the shallow end of the kid's pool. Uh, that's where it started. <laughs> Number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? Uh, that failure is enabling and empowering, that we have to embrace it, that uh, making mistakes are just like in, in film production, missed takes. It's just... One way of doing it, let's do it again a different way. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Robin Williams. Mm, amazing. Uh, yeah, as somebody who's fascinated by th- people who think fast and talk smart, he he was amazing at that. And, and a deep thinker too, not just somebody who is funny. Yeah, so talented. You share a great example of him in the in your book as well, yeah, which I think is great. I'll wait for yeah. people to go and, to go and check that Thank one out. Thank you. Uh, number eight, what tool or resource best helps you run your life or your business? I have an app I use. It's called Superhuman, and it helps me parse through my email. I I am at least 30 to 40% faster in processing information because of that tool. Yeah, I've never used it, but I've seen a bunch of ads for it. Can you give us a quick run through of what it does? So it's a bunch of shortcuts that help you with email. So I, I, as somebody who teaches students, I have to send very similar emails to a lot of people. It's got shortcuts to do that. It gives me encouragement to help uh, reduce all the things in my inbox, has some workflow rules. I, I actually coached the CEO of the company, was so impressed with him as a person. I went out and tried the app and now I'm a big advocate of it. Amazing. Yeah, so good. Uh, number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. I know you got a stray coming up. What, what, what's uh, on yeah. your list? So I would love to spend two or three months in some of the world's biggest, best cities just to experience life from different perspectives. Mm. And final question, number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? I get up every morning and before I leave, I do some Tai Chi practice. It grounds me. It helps me focus, focuses myself on my breath. And I think it gives me more energy. I love it. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect to Matt, and we'll, and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Think Fast, Talk Smart. Grab a copy of his awesome new book, Think Fast, Talk Smarter, on Amazon, and visit his website, mattabrahams.com. Again, all that and more will be linked in the show notes. Matt, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming James, on the show. thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Win the Day podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on what we covered today, so drop a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway, any questions you have, or what actions you'll be taking as a result of what was shared in this episode. And if you found value in the Win the Day podcast, leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. It'll only take you a few seconds and more ratings really helps other people discover the show so they can get the mindset upgrade they need and we can bring more winners into the Win the Day movement. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.